Sorry for the delay in release, everyone. We needed some extra time to make sure we got this one absolutely right. In this episode, Louisa and I talk about some sensitive topics, most specifically about the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. With the anniversary just around the corner and out of respect for our audience and the families who lost loved ones, we thought we should put a little more consideration and attention to detail into our editing process. While our conversation is pretty much what you can expect from two foul-mouthed liberal millennial New Yorkers, we want to give listeners a heads up that our discussion may be triggering for those who are personally affected by the events of 9-11. Our conversation was much longer than what is presented here because the richness of the material in the episode and the questions we felt called to ask each other flowed naturally into over an hour of talking. We represent no opinions other than our own, and we hope that whether or not you agree with us, this episode will inspire you to deeply consider your own relationships with the topics we discuss. But now... With all that said, I'm Louisa Rorschach. And I am Brittany Tuft. And this is That 70s Showdown. Five, six, seven, eight. Hanging out. Dun, do, 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 do. Down the street. Dun, do, 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 do. The same old thing. Dun, do, 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 do. We did last week. Dun, do, 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 do. Not a thing to do. But talk to you. All right, so here we go, episode three. It's called Streaking. I wonder what they're going to do. It should be called Wee Wee Pee Pee. <laughs> Accurate. Um, all right, 30-second uh, countdown, right? Or no? Yeah, no, yeah. totally 30-second countdown. Let me pull it up for you here. I think it's my <sighs> turn since you did last. Mm-hmm. This is going to be actually kind of difficult because it bops around all over yeah, the place. Yeah, this is a... This is a full episode. I've got. So I, have to, I have to turn the page in my notes. I'm cheating. I'm writing notes because you write notes, so I feel like I should write notes. Yeah, notes are totally acceptable. It's not cheating. It's an open book test. Oh, I wish I had more of those in real school. Me too. Those are so good. I never had those. I was in AP classes for everything. Sucks to say. Or to be good, right? Like what? What <laughs> <laughs> nonsense is that? All anyway, right, I'm gonna count you into your thirty seconds. Uh, three, two, one. So the gang is in the basement, as per usual, and then Kitty comes down. She's freaking out because the president is visiting, and it turns out that Jackie knew the whole time because her dad's arranging it. Eric is a smart-ass at dinner, and dad's like, tuna casserole, and they're broke, and Red wants to kick Ford in the ass because he, like, you know, has no money. And then the school principal has a really dope Midwestern accent, and he was, like, telling the gang, don't protest, it's stupid, but then all the boys get ideas, and the light bulbs go over their heads. Um, And then at the Burkhart residence, Bob is like, oh, I know someone who can answer a question, and then he calls Red, and Red is like, hell fucking no, and then he's like, hell fucking yes. And we Oh, shit. Oh, no. I That was not even half of the episode. Do you want to just pick up where I left off? Or do you want to try to defeat me? I'm going to try to defeat you. What do you mean? Oh, fine. Mine are never as good as yours because they're not as um, detailed. But I feel like that's what the rest of the episode is for. Ready? Mm, yeah. Three, two, one. The president is coming, doesn't matter which. Blind patriotism, we must clean a house no one will actually visit, and baked pies no one will actually eat. Having tuna casserole again, times are tough. Red wants to mollywop the president. Light bulbs above the head lead to good, bad ideas. Streaking. Horrible Pinciotti jumpsuits. Red is forced to read questions pre-picked. A lot of American nostalgia for what is the middle-aged people of that time. Ford falls, which, by the way, we were totally talking about. Eric streaks. Red asks how Ford can pardon Nixon. A man's got to do what a man's got to do. Ugh, son of a bitch, you put it in perfectly. Fine. All right. I'll learn how to cheat better like you do. It's not cheating. Uh, Stop calling it cheating. I'm sorry that I'm better at the showdown than you are. I don't know about that. All right, fine. So what did we miss? You hit the Um, bullet points, but, like, there's a lot of details. No, totally. Let's start at the top where you started with... Jackie's father knowing and having planning it. Yeah. And um, I, what I, like the first time that I actually laughed out loud was when Kitty was like, and you didn't tell anybody. So I yes. thought that was really funny. Um, but that's such a Jackie character trait. It is. But it also, I think it, we know that she's spoiled and we know that she's rich, but this is, I think, the first time we see her dad. Yes. He doesn't show up a lot in the you, series, but yeah. it's the first time we see her dad. And it's, well, he spends a lot of series in prison. Oh, that's true. <laughs> I forgot about that. We'll, we'll get to that in later episodes. Coming up. <laughs> but we, this is the first moment we really see 
her family's influence in the town. She's not just rich. You see why she has money. She's not just rich. She's not just spoiled. She's influential. Her family is important. Her dad is running this committee that's getting the president to come by the town. He And he's able to pick people who will ask questions to President Ford. And so it gives us a little bit more insight into who Jackie is and why she is the way she is. It it starts to build out her character. Right. Because you really only see Eric and Donna's parents. Yeah. Because like, you don't ever see Kelso's parents, right? You never see Fez's adoptive parents. You see them once. Do you really? One time when, like, they're giving him a Bible, I think. You're right. Isn't that for his 18th birthday or something like that? He gets the Bible? Or something. And I feel like it's a landmark thing that he gets it for. But it's so odd that you're right. It's very interesting to see Jackie's dad because he kind of fills in some blanks for us. Well, he's like, anything you want, princess. But then we also find out, and you pointed this out, I totally missed this, that... Jackie's dad's name is Jack. Yes. Like, Bob interrupts him to explain what the whole Q&A is. LOL, Bob. Q stands for questions, and the A stands for for answers, answers, just in case you didn't know. Take it away, Jack. And so he says, take it away, Jack. So do you have thoughts on that? Um, Totally. What actually made me realize it wasn't even in that scene, it was I always have subtitles on on Netflix and on iPads and computers. When people are speaking over each other, they put their names in parentheses. And I was like, who the heck is Jack? I was like... Then I was like, oh, Jackie's dad. Um, I think that's so, that's some George Foreman shit. I think it's so weird and <laughs> awkward and like, I, I, I hate that. I hate, when, like if it's not a family name that someone can carry on, I don't see what, what's the point. I think there is a point because even though this is, it's really subtle and a lot of viewers I'm sure completely miss this, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Right. That Jackie is really her father's daughter. Yes. And without saying anything else, without making us really think about it, it just it tells me that like the, the showrunner, like the people who wrote this episode were thinking about that. The people who designed all of the characters were thinking about that. Like how like she is so conceited. <laughs> Wouldn't she yeah, that would make sense if she's the conceited child of a conceited adult. Yeah. And when we meet her mom later on, her mom is full of herself. And like what's, Shields, right? Yes. What yeah. is a more like full of yourself thing to do than name your child after yourself? Yeah. Especially because I feel like at that point he had like a JFK name, Jack stood for John. Mm -hmm. So he even named her after his preferred nickname, which I think is even more hilarious. Just a little more vain, you know what I mean? It's not yeah. even like he named her. Just the like, vanity. Yeah, I love oh, it. Oh, the vanity. So anyway, after after that, what? Where do we? Oh, Bob asking Red to ask a question. Right. What? So I guess what I'm a little confused about is how Donna's dad and Jackie's dad would be on the same committee. Because Donna's dad is a business owner. At this oh, point, yeah, he's not right. bankrupt you're right, yet. You're right, you're right. And his business kind of slays. That's what I slays. always think of him post-season yeah, four or five. His yeah. business is like kind of on top of everything. That makes sense. I just can't imagine them like wearing jackets and hanging out and smoking cigars, right. though, Because even, even though, I guess the difference is old money versus new money. Yeah. That Donna's dad, Bob, is just like so crass because he's so new money, whereas the Burkharts are clearly a more established family. Right. But new money still has to hang out with old money. You just look like an idiot, like Bob right. always does. But what, what struck me about when Bob asks Red, do you want to ask this question? It's how excited Kitty gets and now how immediately she's shut down. Yeah. Red's like, no, 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 I actually, I don't need to do that. And Kitty says, I'll do it, I'll do it. Oh my God, I, I will totally ask a question to the president. And Bob shuts her down and is like, Kitty, why don't you go back to making your pies? Right. And it's, yeah, no, I noticed that as well. That she's so excited, yeah. and I mean, this will. And what she does doesn't matter to them. Essentially, is a huge point that's driven home there. But then also, it really feeds into women's exclusion in politics. Yeah, I mean, which is still going on. Let's be still let's going be real. on. Let's be real. And so, I mean, they put it in a comedic way, but it's it's really talking about women's exclusion from politics. You're not allowed to have an opinion. You're not allowed to ask a question of the president. You're not allowed to be engaged. Right. She's not even allowed to be excited that the president's coming almost. Like, I feel like everyone's kind of mocking her because she's trying to get her house into, like, prim and proper shape. Mm -hmm. Even though Kitty knows, like, the president is not going to come into her house. He doesn't give a shit about the oil stain in your driveway. (laughs) It's just the point that he is coming to their town, and by any off chance that he drives past her house, she wants him to see that middle America's doing okay. I also think that um, this was obviously so clearly done on purpose. They're having tuna casserole again for dinner. While oh, we're yeah, talking she, about she, the president coming. Yeah, Red says tuna casserole again, and Kitty says, well, how about we don't pay the car insurance and we'll all have steak? Right. And I think that's important because Ford, a lot of a lot of Americans hated Ford because he did send factories overseas, and he is the beginning of kind of our 
economical discharge of people working with their hands in middle middle America. Mm-hmm. So a lot I, of factories, a lot of, you know, like he had a big thing to do with Detroit, getting parts, you know, China, yeah. these, like all of that other stuff. So I think it's like vital that he's visiting during while Red is going through a cutback at work, which will, as we know, when you watch the show, will eventually lead to him not even having that job at all. Mm-hmm. So I love that. I love the time period and the climate of this visit. Yeah, of, I also, I, maybe it's just because I love Kitty. Like she is the heart of my heart. Like she is just so great. It's not her fault. It's not necessarily her responsibility, but she's the one who's getting the brunt of his frustration right now. Yes. Like tuna casserole again, as in like yes. wife, this is the best you can do. Right. Like meanwhile, it's like, look, she get another job then. You don't want her to work. Right. So get another job. And I mean, she does work. She does work. She's, she's a working nurse. as a nurse, but so she has to nurse and also provide a meal that keeps you interested and on your toes. And so I really appreciated her sassy clap back of like, yeah. well, okay, you don't want tuna casserole. Where are we going to change, push numbers around our budget so that you can get the steak you want, sweetie. Right. And like, what I, are you going to stop paying? Right. And I just, it's not fair that Kitty gets yelled at over a tuna casserole. But I guess that's, that's how red is. Yeah. <laughs> so I said this in my totally failed 30 second recap, um, that the school principal has an amazing Midwestern accent. Like I want to, I didn't pay attention to the credits. I want to know who that actor is because his Midwestern accent was, was just giving me a lot of feelings. Um, I also really loved the light bulb thing and I yes. love that they carried it into the next scene with Bob and Red. Mm-hmm. I thought that was like really funny and so obvious and to the point, but I just feel like that's such simple comedy, you know, mm-hmm. watching them all at different times, just light up and be like, no, yeah, we're going to, we're going to do something f- absolutely fucking stupid. And then, but then Red is the one to break it with, turn that light off. Yeah. So but just that's so red. Right. It's it's that's a so that's a full red. circle of comedy in like less than right. you know, two minutes. Let's see. Oh, Bob and Midge have America jumpsuits. You you put that in your yeah. thirty second recap. Big fan. You really like those? Big fan. I have three people in my family very interested in doing it. Not for this president, <laughs> but you know, like Hopefully future presidents if if we make it there. I don't think so. <laughs> Oh, that's so sad. Why am I laughing? Oh, I, this wasn't a burn, so I'm not going to save it for the burn section. But when Donna says, Mom, why are you doing this? And Midge says, Honey, there are lots of things I do to make your father happy that I don't really like. And that's, like, hilarious because of the sexual innuendo. And then, of course, Midge says, No, 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 I like that. Yeah. <laughs> and just, like, it's, again, as... And honestly, it, this is showing up in every single episode so far. And the next episode, episode four, is called Battle of the Sexists. Mm-hmm. But in this episode, it's just... Once again, the expectations of femininity, the expectations of a wife and wifely duties. Of what you have to do even if it makes you uncomfortable in the bedroom. Like what you have to do to please your man. And Kitty's saying, like, I would love to make you a meal that's not tuna casserole, but I'm doing the best with what I've got. And Midge is saying, I need to make my man happy, so I'll put on this dumbass jumpsuit and or do a thing or two in the bedroom. Right. And I also feel like Donna is a little bit pressured in a sense and she kind of does exactly what she doesn't want to make her dad happy at the end which is also I think a a very fair example of what you're saying Mm -hmm. just a different relationship rather than a sexual one it's more of an affectionate one but still like at the end she shows up in the with the stars because she's the stars and she's the field of blue she stands there like like a douche nozzle (laughs) (laughs) so when they're finally at the rally the boys see the feds. They start to chicken out, which is hysterical to me. They're like, oh, yeah, we just remember this part. thing. What do, we, what do we skip? Red's like, what is current baby boomer day nostalgia? Oh, my gosh. I wrote down the like, whole thing. This is, um, I wrote she's like, you still have the Toyota. And he goes, where is the America I knew as a boy? Yeah. I think that's really honest and real, number one, because mm-hmm. you never see a vulnerable side of Red. And number two, I think it's a valid question that everybody asks when they reach that middle age. I don't know from experience, but even my dad, like when I listen to him, like, um, I talked to him about the cassette players from last episode, and yeah. he was like, well, when I was a kid, you would go, and you would just be able to buy the tapes, and you would take them off the players, and you didn't have to pay the man, and I'm like, all oh, that bullshit's gone now, you know, like, they know what I'm downloading to my computer. Like, <laughs> the man knows. But um, I love that red Hashtag R.I.P. LimeWire, so... Giving your computer aids just to <laughs> just to listen to that S Club Seven song. Yes. Um, but I love the nostalgia, like that. He's not a baby boomer. Like, well, I don't know what generation exactly he would fall under mm-hmm. as being a middle aged in the seventies. But I just really love that 
she tells him, you have this Japanese car, and he's like, Aren't well, they the, called the greatest generation? Is that what they're called? I, th- I don't know if that's them or their parents, actually. I don't know if it's people who survived the Depression as adults or people who survived the Depression as children. I feel like it was ones who survived the Depression as children. I'm really, that I'm not sure. Um, but I think that nostalgia is very real. But it's also 100% carries over to today. Yes. Of Make, make America, America Great, great Again. again. Of like, which like gagged me with a spoon. I had to make that noise. I know you hate added noises, but I had to make that noise. <laughs> but it's just, it's Red's so just true. tired, and he says they took my job and my stability, and now they want to take away my right to free speech because they give him the options for the questions. Yeah. Um, I guess I kind of forgot about this episode because I was like, good for woke red. Like, woke red could be zaddy. <laughs> <laughs> ten out of ten could get. And um, did you notice that Ford falls? Oh, yeah. Three times. I counted okay. them. He, so he falls three. I didn't Tell get me it. about this. You I didn't, didn't get it? Oh, I well. didn't, and then I looked it up, right? <laughs> so I'm like, why? Like, why? 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 So <laughs> I think he was in Germany. He got off the plane with Betty, who, you know, started rehab clinics. Go, Betty. Um, and he literally falls down, like, the last few steps, like a sack of potatoes, dude. <laughs> literally, he's just, like, going, going, gone. And she, like, grabs the railing so that she doesn't take her down with him. And then all these people are just, like, rushing to help the president. So I guess, like, that, like that, and that's the only one I could find. So I thought that that, and, like, you see him kind of, like, trip. So I get the three times thing because, he, you like, he's going to catch himself. He's going to catch himself. Nope. And then you're like, no, 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 no. no, no. He's yeah, out. He's down. Clear. <laughs> Safe. Um, so I loved that that little pop culture nod. Yeah. Because it didn't even happen in America. I think that that inclusion is there for the adult viewers in 1998. My dad is someone who really appreciates some of those references because mm-hmm. he, even now watching, uh, he was a teenager at this time, mm-hmm. he'll be like, oh, yeah. I remember when that happened. Right, because I, like, I, like, I was like, did Ford really fall on TV? And he's like, news wasn't broadcasted the way it is now. He was like, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he fell on his keister. He's like, yep, live TV. <laughs> I was like, wow. On his ass. That's great. And so, yeah, that's... So I appreciate that moment because it just it's talking about who the audience is right. for this show. It's not just the young kids because I was watching this as like a, a preteen. Right. But it's then, not for preteens or the kids who are misunderstood smoking weed. It's kind of it's for it's, it's a show that you can actually kind of sit down with everybody and watch. It's a family show. Family. It's family. Um, I love how nervous Red is to ask the question. Because we never see him that way. No. And I think it's very fucking weird. For that him and Eric, like, switch roles in this episode. Eric is the unlikely hero in this situation, putting on the next to mask and streaking. Because he gives yeah. his dad the strength to ask, like, how in the hell could you pardon Richard Nixon? Which, by the way, is a valid question. But I think, was that, was Red's nervousness because Jack Burkhart, Jackie's dad, had just, like, introduced him as a hardworking man who doesn't blame the president, only blames himself. Like... Was it partially, but I also think that it kind of falls back to patriotism. I do. I think it's kind of like I like even I because I thought about it like I always say like if I saw Donald Trump on the street, like I would absolutely go off on him. But like, would I would I hesitate for a second because it is the president of the United States? You know what I'm saying? Like, like, is there a moment where I would turn and just be like, oh, my God, like. I hate this man, but he is the leader of the free world. Like, there has to be a moment oh. in which you have... Yeah, I know how fucked up is that. But there has to be a moment in which, like, you kind of have... I feel like that's part of it. I definitely think, like, his introduction... Like, you're right, I didn't even think about that. Sets him up. But I, I think that his... He kind of realizes who he's speaking to. Like, he talks so much. I'm going to kick the president in the keister. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then he got up there, and it was... Uh, 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 uh. Derp, derp. But I think that's very, it's very realistic that he's nervous like that. Yeah. Because if he was so calm and so coy, you wouldn't believe he was talking to the president of the United States. It, Especially at that time. Yeah. And if, if he went up there like gangbusters, it wouldn't have the same emotional satisfaction when of his, he needed Eric in that moment. He'll never yeah. admit it. But he, he looks over his shoulder towards Eric. And that's when Eric puts on the mask, throws off the trench coat, and goes, wee wee, pee pee. And he does the I am not a crook hand motions, and I love that. And then um, runs screaming. <laughs> do you know why Ford pardoned Nixon? Tell me. Um, so they came down to it with Nixon's thing that they could either go through with it and he could start impeachment processes. He could resign. And the third option was in a sense of like, oh, maybe this will go away. And obviously that wasn't happening. So he went to Ford and he essentially said, if I resign and give you this position, you pardon me. 
And that's why everybody hates Ford. That's why nobody voted for Ford, which is true. Nobody voted for nobody. Ford. Nobody. And then to put a bow on the end of this episode, Eric walks in the house and he's like, hey, Dad, that was really cool what you did. Like, that was, like, thumbs up to you. I'm going to go to bed. And, and Red says, yeah, a man has to stand up for what he thinks is right. Which I loved. Yeah. And then he's like, next time, don't wear black socks. Look, look like an man. asshole. But I think that's him kind of approving of what Eric did without yeah. saying what you did was good. It was him kind of being like, a man has to do what a man has to do, and you had to do that in that moment, so thank you. Yeah. So I kind of loved that that came together at the end, because you don't get many episodes with Red and Eric bonding like that. Or coming down on the same side of something. Right. Together. So, right. And, like, that Red isn't the enemy, I guess. Like, they mm-hmm. had a common enemy. Like, Eric wanted to streak. Red wanted to embarrass the president. And I think, They both like, accomplished yeah, that. they both <laughs> literally got everything done, you know? Um, and I also love that after Red asks his question, the entire crowd applauds. Like, it's what everyone else was thinking. Every single person in that room. So I have to assume that every American at that point was kind of wondering the same thing. Like, how the hell could we pardon Richard Nixon? I said this before as well, but I'm going to say it again. Eric and his, like, like just not caring about politics as someone who is coming up on the cusp of being 18 is, like, the equivalent of those people who just voted for Jill Stein in the 2016 election. <laughs> like, he's just like, everyone who's entitled to their, their opinion on politics, like, it's like, okay, you don't want to jump in while, like, your family is affected by the current president in office. So I actually just wanted to make that point before I forgot about it because it was infuriating. Like, I literally paused it, and I was like, oh, what a I, white teenager. I actually, I saw that less as him being apathetic and more of, like, having opinions that he cannot vocalize in front of his father. And so he's taken the biggest cop out ever by saying something vague and not I think, not though, arguable. in that sense, he disagreed with Kitty and agreed with Red, though, in that scene, in my opinion. Really? Yeah. Why? Because Kitty is just kind of blindly being like, the president, the president, the president. And Eric could give two shits the president's coming. That's why he's going to go streaking with his friends, which is, you know... And then, but like Red is, you know, kind of talking about how about Red, about him taking jobs and about like how mm-hmm. he's messing up the economy and how he, you know all this other stuff. And I think that you know Eric kind of, like maybe not in the same depth, but he agrees with those points. And it's Kitty who's just kind of like, no, we have to do this. It's the president that he disagrees with, but he doesn't want to make his mom look stupid in front of Red. True. Which that's not the same as being apathetic. That's trying to balance out your position in your family and being in a family with differing political opinions, which yeah. if that's not 2018, <laughs> I don't know what is. Like if that's not the past two and a half years of the American political climate, I don't talk especially, to my family because of the last election. Right. Especially for young people our age, well, we're in our mid to late twenties and Eric was 17, but still like of trying to balance, like I love this person, but I disagree with them. I'm not trying to start a war at the dinner table, so let me say the most vague, non-committal thing possible yeah. just to, like, make it to the next meal. You know, when I was 16, 17, and Obama was running in 2008, I tried to get a fake ID to vote, and my brother caught me and was like, you will go to fucking jail. <laughs> it's like, do not, <laughs> do not vote do with a fake ID. And But, like, I guess I've just been someone who's been very interested in politics around me since I was younger. I didn't do that, by the way, so, you know, don't stick the police on me. Um, <laughs> NSA is definitely listening. But, yeah, tough to this, of course. He doesn't love that so much. I voted legally for the first time for Obama in 2012, though. Yeah, uh, um, voting for Obama was my first... My first election. Mine too, but I wanted to vote for his first time. So I, no, no, his yeah. first time was, yeah, no. it, I was, how old? It was sophomore year, and I was 19 years old, and he was my first election. And I remember being in Colorado, and I caucused for him too, because there aren't primaries in Colorado, right. there are caucuses. So I caucused for Obama, and then I voted for Obama, and I remember being in Colorado and being on the phone with my mom back in New York. And as the results were coming in, we were just on the phone crying of like being so happy. And I think. I think she may have voted for Hillary in the primary. I don't really remember. It's not that important to me because Obama won, so it was all good. But I mean, I, if he didn't, at least that wouldn't have been such a big difference as what we're going that was, right now. But that was my first election, and I was so engaged and so interested in this, but also things were not as deeply divided in 2008, I don't feel. or It wasn't as obviously um, I, I don't. Divided. I don't think it was as divided because people were not as comfortable being so openly racist. Facts. So no, I don't. I think that like all of this garbage still existed. I just don't think. I think people just kind of wasn't did on that. the surface. It's it like wasn't. a fetish, you know. You went home and you did that shit alone at home. Like, you didn't <laughs> do that on the streets, like you know, running people over and 
South Carolina with trucks, you know? We just, we had, we were better. I miss you, Obama. When was your first awareness of politics? 2001. Yeah, I think me too. I remember being in my sixth grade classroom. I was in fourth grade. And we were talking about the Electoral College. And as a 12-year-old, I was like, well, that doesn't sound fucking fair. Um, no, <laughs> we, mine was definitely... I just, like, I remember being deeply disappointed and upset that Al Gore had not won. Right. I remember that, and I remember 9-11. That was the first time politics came up. And then I remember in 2004, I was very obsessed with the idea that it had come out. And I was young. I was, like, maybe in uh, sixth, seventh grade, that um, George W. Bush had fixed the election to win against John Kerry. Mm. And that was, like, a huge thing that he had, like, that the votes had come in and the way that they'd come in and, like, all this other mm. stuff. And I remember, like, being, like, oh, my God, holy shit, our government's corrupt. And my brother was, like, welcome to the conversation. Okay, I lied. My first awareness of politics was in 1998 when Clinton did that nasty thing with Monica Lewinsky. I remember being, like, eight years old, nine years old, and think and seeing the coverage and, like, hearing older, like, adults talking about, like, this is so shameful, this is terrible— and then the impeachment process was starting. And as an ignorant eight-year-old, my whole thing was like, who cares who the president's having sex with? Like, and don't mean, we have bigger fucking fish to fry? Like, now I, I get it. It was about him lying and abuses of power. Like, then, Monica Lewinsky is who got crucified there. They crucified an intern rather than the president. Like... It was all sorts of messed up. It really was. All sorts of messed up. Anti-everything, to But be that honest. was my first real, like consideration That's of what fair. the president's job was and how the public thinks about the president. I was like, Mine the was president's job is to like be the president. Why are we talking about right. who he is having sex with? And as an eight-year-old, I really didn't have a clean concept of what right. sex actually you was. You had no idea what exactly it was he had done with Monica Lewinsky. I didn't really get it, but I did get like, this is, can he just do his job? Can we just make him do his job, please? But I digress. Uh, let's wrap up because we're we're getting into the theme, which if it weren't obvious already, the theme of this episode that we're going to discuss is patriotism. Um, I have so nice many fucking harmonizing, by the way. We did a great job. I have so many feelings about this and so many things to say, but I keep I keep diving into the meat of the episode. I'm so excited. Is there anything else that we missed in our recap um, that we need to hit the nail on? There is just one, two quotes that I want to share. Number one, yeah. um, Kitty's fucking banger. President Ford didn't take your job, honey. He took Nixon's. And yeah, yeah. Um, Kitty was on fire this episode she because really she was. also said to Donna, "Honey, all families are embarrassing, and if they're if not they're embarrassing, embarrassing, they're, they're dead. dead." She just she, for as much as she was excluded from being politically active, she a hundred percent was active in throwing out them firebombs. Um, the other one I really liked was from Fez when he, because I love that he still kind of doesn't understand their cultural yes. norms. So when he's like, if you don't want the fuzz on your ass, why don't you shave it off? Or when they're trying to think of a good protest, he says, a bloody coup. Right, yes, 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 <laughs> which, yes. Which also is playing into all sorts of ideas about Latin America, but uh, we'll, we'll push that to the side for now. But first, we're going to take a brief music break before we get back into our conversation on patriotism. Today's break is a twofer, an introduction to the Cowsills, a family band who reached peak popularity in the late 1960s, early 70s, and an exploration of some of America's most famous patriotic songs. Part one, the Cowsills. When Kitty says, Cherry, mock apple, blueberry, see that red, white, and blue, it's like the beginning to love American style in pie. She's referencing a long-running TV sitcom that was popular in the late 60s to mid-70s. Love American Style was an anthology comedy series featuring a lineup of different celebrity guest stars appearing in anywhere from one to four short scenes or vignettes within an hour of stories about love and romance. Many individual stories from the series were later turned into their own series, such as Happy Days, Mork and Mindy, and Laverne and Shirley. The theme song, Love American Style, was written for the show and performed by the family band The Cowsills. The band started with just two brothers, Billy and Bob Cowsill, teaching themselves how to play guitar and sing in harmony. The two brothers began performing at school dances and church functions in their hometown of Canton, Ohio, before the family moved to Newport, Rhode Island. Once settled there, younger brothers Barry and John were recruited to play bass and drums respectively, and the four teens began a young career by playing a steady weekend gig at Bannister's Wharf and other town venues, where their set lists were primarily comprised of Beatles covers. 
as they gained local attention, they recorded a single, All I Really Want to Be Is Me, with Joda Label and cut their single in 1967. It didn't get a lot of response, but they managed to land a spot performing on NBC's The Today Show. They quickly signed to Mercury Records and cut three more singles, but none of them were hits by any measure. Their producer was convinced that a band of siblings making music together could be a hit, so he arranged another recording session for them and invited their mother, Barbara, to join as vocalist. The song they recorded was The Rain, The Park, and Other Things. The single rose to number two on the national charts and sold over a million copies by the fall of 1967. The group was then joined by youngest siblings Paul and Susan. At full strength in 1968, they were mother and six children between ages 8 and 19. They made a few more hits, including Indian Lake in 1968 and their biggest chart topper, Hair, the title song from the rock musical of 1969. Side note, I performed in my college's production of Hair when I was a senior, and yes, we were on drugs, and yes, I danced around naked in front of my peers and professors, and yes, it was the best thing I did that year, tribe family forever. But back to the Cousels. At their peak, television producers were considering making a TV show about the family of traveling musicians and singers, but it never really panned out. Instead, their story was fictionalized and became the legendary TV show The Partridge Family. After only a few years of success as a single music-making unit, they disbanded in 1971 and the siblings went their own ways. In the decades since, they have on occasion regrouped in various formations for projects and performances, but they have never been in the studio altogether again. Part 2, America, I Sing of Thee. So in my travels, I've met a number of people who have asked me questions about why America is the way it is. The one question that really set me back a few years ago was, why do you have so many national anthems? At first, I had no idea what this meant because like, we only really have one, but the more I considered it, the more I realized that it actually is kind of true. Aside from the Star Spangled Banner, which is our national anthem, we also have America the Beautiful and God Bless America. These are all songs that are traditionally sung at sporting events, inaugurations, and other affairs of state. However, my favorite of all our potential national anthems is Lift Every Voice and Sing. For those who don't know what I'm talking about, here's a quick history lesson. The words to what would become the Star-Spangled Banner were written in 1814 by poet Francis Scott Key about a battle he witnessed during the War of 1812. The poem was set to the tune of a popular British song and quickly became very popular with American patriots. Side note, I hope the irony in that is not lost on you. It was first recognized by the U.S. Navy for official use in 1889 and cycled in and out of common use over the next 40 years, particularly during the First World War, until it was made the official national anthem in 1931. This part actually really cracks me up because that means that the song itself just surpassed 200 years of age, and it's only in its 87th year of official government use. And people like to treat it as if it's been handed down to us as legend from 1776. It wasn't even written about the American Revolution. It's also super problematic because though we only sing one, it's made of four stanzas, and the third stanza contains some pretty pro-slavery lyrics. Some scholars argue that it's not about racism, but Francis Scott Key came from a southern slaveholding family, and many slaves were freed by the British during the War of 1812 and became mercenaries that fought against their former masters. So I kind of think that Key was really pissy about this and wrote negative things about them in his song. My favorite rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner would have to be Whitney Houston's 1991 performance at Super Bowl XXV. It's gorgeous, it's powerful, and even a person as mildly patriotic as myself is moved by its strength and purity. As can be expected, during times of war, this song means so much more to people. In more recent years, the anthem at sporting events has become a point of contention, with athletes like Colin Kaepernick taking a knee during its singing to protest police violence against the black community. I'm not going to get all the way into that right now because it could be its own podcast, but even the most basic of Google searches can tell you more about why Kaepernick is choosing to kneel during playing of the anthem and what it symbolizes. The next song I mentioned, America the Beautiful, was originally written as a poem entitled Pike's Peak by English professor Catherine Lee Bates while she was a visiting professor at Colorado College during the summer of 1893. Shout out to my CC homies! Ooh, ooh! Bates was inspired by many sights along her trip out west to Colorado, but it was from the top of Pike's Peak that the words made their way into her head and later onto paper. The poem was published two years later in celebration of the 4th of July. Soon after publishing, many tunes were written and suggested to accompany it, but the most popular and longest-lasting was a melody that was actually previously written by Samuel A. Ward in 1882. Ward's music and Bates's words were published together in 1910 as America the Beautiful, and it has lived on ever since. 
There have actually been many efforts in the last 100 plus years to make America the Beautiful the official national anthem, but obviously none of those have succeeded. I personally would support this because it's so much easier to sing than the Star Spangled Banner. So I laugh at myself for this, but I always confuse America the Beautiful with God Bless America. I have to sort of sing them to myself to remember how each of them go individually, otherwise I combine the words and the melodies into some unintelligibly semi-patriotic mashup. God Bless America, written by Irving Berlin during World War I and revised in 1938 before World War II, is another celebrated piece of American patriotic culture. Berlin wrote it while he was at army training, but shelved the song when he couldn't find an appropriate use for it. With Hitler's rise in the late 30s, Berlin, a Russian Jew, felt that it was the perfect time to revive and revise it to become an anthem of hope and peace. It was first sung to the public via radio broadcast through the star-powered voice of Kate Smith. Her version of it remains one of the most famous of the song. Surprisingly, there was a great deal of resistance to God Bless America. Anti-Semitic groups such as the KKK protested the song as it was written by a Jew. More memorably, Woody Guthrie, American singer-songwriter in the folk music scene and social justice activist, felt that it glorified what should be criticized in this country and wrote, This Land is Your Land in response. His original song contained six verses, two of which were very political. They speak about income inequality through land being held as private property and the state of hunger and poverty that many American citizens experienced during the Great Depression and beyond. But lastly, and certainly not leastly, there's Lift Every Voice. Colloquially known as the Black National Anthem, it is something I've known and loved since grade school. Many children in the U.S., particularly in urban areas with large black populations, are introduced to the song at school assemblies celebrating either Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., or Juneteenth, the day the final state in the country abolished slavery. I'm talking about you, Texas. The song was written and first performed as a poem in 1900 by James Weldon Johnson, the principal of a segregated black school in Jacksonville, Florida, in celebration of the birthday of Abraham Lincoln and to introduce their honored guest for that celebration, Booker T. Washington. Five years later, it was set to music by the author's brother, and in 1919, the NAACP took it on as the Negro National Anthem. The song has been used again and again in times of struggle by the Black peoples of America to lift each other up and voice affirmations of hope and liberty. Most recently, it was launched into the mainstream by Beyonce, who performed it as an unannounced part of her 2018 Coachella set list. While I roll my eyes at all the folks who are just now hearing about this song, I have to thank Queen Bey for waking some white people up with her music. Well, that's all I have for this week's music break, and I guess it wasn't so brief after all, but I hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. You can find all of the songs that I've mentioned on our Spotify playlist. Please click the link on our website, thatshowdownpodcast.com, and follow our Spotify playlist to get the best of our music every week. But for now, let's get back to the conversation. So... We've already talked a lot about it, and we're going to continue going on about patriotism. And patriotism, America first. <laughs> oh, God. There are two things that really stuck out to me that I want to specifically talk about, and one of them is the idea of the right to protest and dissent being a patriotic thing, but then also I want us to talk about flag culture. Okay. So which one of those do you want to hit first? I want to start with flag culture because okay. I thought about this. Hit me. What do you – I have my thoughts. I want to know your thoughts first. Um, the so fact I'm, that they're wearing the American flag. It's like you're not supposed to do that. It's yeah. It's like a big thing. And, like, I think that people constantly, like, mistake that for patriotism. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, my ass, my bathing suit ass has uh, the American flag on it. Yeah, bikinis with American flags. Banana hammocks with American flags. Like, this beach towel that I put face down with the American flag on it. Like, like all of these things. Like you're upset that people are burning flags in a sense in the street right now in protest, but you, you disrespect have an the flag, flag by putting on your, your genitals. Thank you. Get out of here. Thank you. It's not American. It, it also, I, I've been really lucky and I've traveled a lot of countries, mainly in Europe, but other places too. But America, we put a flag on Everything. Yeah. Like, we are obsessed. Especially after 9-11. We are obsessed with our flags. They're on every single subway car. They're on every single city bus. They're on every single, um, any single person who is in a union, it's on their helmet. They have a sticker on the back. My dad isn't even in a union. He works for Con Ed. He's got a big sticker on the back. It's, we put it everywhere. Like, every church has an American flag. Flag, usually has a flagpole in the front yard or whatever. Every school has a flag. 
It's just an absolute... And the flags dictate our mood throughout the country, whether they're half staff or full staff. Honestly, sometimes I'm like, oh, it's half. Who died now? Like, who, who, who got murdered now? That happened now? to me recently, funny enough, and I was like, why is it at half staff? And I was at a school, and I was like, why? And they're like, oh, this is from whatever, whatever. We just never put it back up. And I was like... Valid. It's going to be back down in another cool. two days anyway. Cool. Yeah, but that's like not what you're supposed to do, but it's fine, whatever. Keep it at half and staff all the time. Just we're mourning America. America's dying. It's... It's so strange to me. So when I go to other countries, I don't see flags hanging out of every single window. I mm-hmm. don't see flags being flown in all the cars, like from antenna on the cars. You don't, you just, you only see the flags in, on specific holidays and in buildings that are involved Political in the Political buildings state. in a sense, yeah. Yeah. And Which I makes sense. Our, the American idea that putting a flag on it makes it patriotic is so weird. Yeah. It's just so, it's so we strange. We put it backwards on things so you can see them in rearview mirrors on cars. Yeah. The fronts of ambulances and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it also, so. so you can see it in the <laughs> rearview rear mirror. mirror of your car. You see the correct direction in the rear view. And part of this is also, so I, for, this is going to be a surprise to you. You're going to laugh. I considered joining the military. I considered joining the Coast Guard for about a minute and a half. And everyone's like, oh my God, the Coast Guard's so lame. First of all, no, it isn't. Don't hate. Second of all, it's because they, like, women can always have the same positions as men, so it's very equal. And also, I prefer the idea. It is very equal. I prefer the idea of defense as opposed to going out there and starting shit. Right. Like, I'm not going to start shit, but I'll, I'll finish it. I'll finish it. it. Right. I'll finish it. Good and also, And also, the Coast Guard protects the waterways. They do a lot of environmental work. There was a lot about the Coast Guard that I felt was... Much more in line with my personal Beliefs, agenda. Yeah. I'm not doing it now because I still don't want to take orders from the top, and we know who that is. But uh, <laughs> yeah, Steve so, Bannon. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Sorry, couldn't let that one go. You are so corny. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho, so like I, I was thinking about being engaged in that kind of thing, and leading up to this, I was also a Girl Scout for 11 years of my life, and then I worked. Oh, yeah, we're doing the Girl Scout Me sign. Too. Everyone who is listening, we're doing the Girl Scout sign. On, On my, my honor, honor, I will try, try to serve God and my country to help people at all times and to live by the Girl Scout law. I'm glad we're sisters. Um, but oh, see, my God, I've never met someone else who knows it. <laughs> but oh do you, did you do flag ceremonies? Yeah. And like I, a badge for that. I know how to fold a flag. And I yeah. actually, like, I don't consider myself to be deeply patriotic because I have... I just don't. That's not something that's important to me. But when I see someone dicking around with a flag and not folding it correctly, that does like piss off a deep part of me that I don't always think about being there. And I think it's because I was so trained. Like I remember being forced to memorize the Pledge of Allegiance. I remember having to memorize and the fact that the Girl Scout like promise says to serve God and my country. There was a moment when I was like going through a little bit of an atheist kick, and so I wouldn't say the God part, but I never, ever stopped saying for, country. for my country. And like that, that kind of deep ingrainment, it's just the, I just have a lot of ideas and a lot of feelings about patriotism and how what we accept blindly and what is a part of us that we don't always realize is a part of us, and how are we, how are we doing it right? How are we doing it wrong? I think being the post 9-11 generation, because that's what we are, our whole lives changed after that day. Mm -hmm. And, like, I actually got into a fight with a professor at college. He's like, we're the Cold War kids. What are you guys? Like, you guys don't have a defining moment. And I was like... 9-11? What are you talking about? I raised my hand. I was like, yeah, we're the post 9-11 generation. I was like, I'm the generation that I could, in the beginning of my life, get on a plane with shoes on, and now I can't. Mm -hmm. I was like, you know, I am the generation that will never take a subway without wondering if someone's going to bomb it. I was like, that's what we are. I think no matter what kind of truth or conspiracy that you accept, to believe about 9-11 when that happened in our country it was the first time that anything like that really had happened like since what Pearl Harbor maybe and even then that was from, from a non-domestic right. terrorist like it yeah. was something that wasn't because Oklahoma right. City happened yes, but yes, that's a domestic terrorist so it can't yeah. state but I mean this was in a sense of foreign governments quote mm-hmm. unquote I'm doing the quote unquote um and I think that after that happened every single thing that you touched from like 2001 to 2011 had a flag on it. 
People Everything were like your ninety nine cent stores were selling those Chinese slipper sandals with American flags on the soles. Like it just became a thing where America was so ingrained because we had been attacked and because so many people had died and then we went to war. And then what well, we've been in war like ninety percent of my life so far. Mm-hmm. Like I think that's where your like undoubted patriotism comes from and you don't even realize that it's there. It's just something that while you were growing up, it was so normal because you went through normal. a time where our country was under attack. Or so we thought, so we were led to believe. And so we immediately were just like, we're America and we can bounce back and these colors don't run and all this other happy horse shit that they kind of fed into you. And I think that has a huge thing to do with it. I think it kind of brainwashed all of us a little bit. Yeah. Because like, I'll, like people will still be like, oh, if you don't like America, get out. And even though I don't like America, I don't like us right now. Honestly, but sometimes I think about leaving, but then I realize that's me thinking seriously about leaving is coming from a place of privilege that I can leave. Right. And there's so many who can't, can't leave. Right. So I kind of feel like I should stay and try. I just think, like, I get what you're saying totally. But I think that right now we're at a point where we're everyone's kind of questioning, questioning their own patriotism. Is it to you? Is it to Russia? Is it to Trump? Like, what are we, like, <laughs> you know, I feel uh, like... My patriotism, and I have, I have said this for years, like, I don't really give a shit about America, but you touch New York... And I will come after you. That's totally different. Like in my, my head, 9-11 only affected New York. And yeah. I know that that's not true. Like, I know that that is so not true. But as New However, Yorkers, we really suffered the most, number one. We have such a different relationship with And number 9/11. two, I don't think any other city in the entire world would have been able to get their shit together as fast as we did. We got our shit together. Immediately. It was like three days, and then, all right, time to go back to work. Right. We got our shit I, together. I think I got two days off school, and then I went back to school. And my neighborhood in Queens was flooded with smoke because right through my park... You saw the Twin Towers and mm-hmm. all the smoke from the wind and the water just came directly to us. So we couldn't even walk around the neighborhood and we yeah. were so far from the city. So I think... Um, I actually, I remember that smell. That's one of the things I remember most. I remember because I grew up in Washington Heights, which is for non-New York listeners, really far uptown. Like it's almost as far north in Manhattan as you can go before you leave. There's one more neighborhood right. beyond me and then you're in the Bronx. Right. And I remember walking across the George Washington Bridge because there were no buses, there were no trains, there was nothing, nothing. at this time. My mom no and I No cars, cars were left abandoned. Cars were left abandoned and my mom and I wanted to go get Indian food at this place in Fort Lee. I don't know what. I think we were just in shock and we were doing crazy things. We're like we want Indian food from this restaurant in Fort Lee. So we walked across the bridge and we could still 3 days after it, so September 14th, see the plume over Lower Manhattan and we could smell it. From 14 you miles away. You could smell away. bodies, too. You really yeah, could. And it, I, I, did, I was thinking in my head smell. if I should say that. That's the smell that I can remember. I remember. It was like an electrical smell and also a body smell. I think New York City got a lot of criticism for the way that they handled things and how fast they went back to their business. But like That's a coping mechanism, 100%. It is, especially for New Yorkers, because we're always in a rush. And I think we were in a rush to forget about this tragedy. And not forget about the tragedy, but forget that we it didn't affect us the way that it yeah, did. And I don't think any other city... And I remember, I don't know why I remember this so specifically, but a mayor in Oklahoma attacked Giuliani, who I hate because he rode up on the backs of cops and firefighters throughout 9-11 and mm-hmm. then offered them no health insurance. Yeah. But um, he, like, attacked what Giuliani was doing, and he was like, how can you send these scared people back to work? And a New Yorker responded on New York One, and she was like, and she cursed, and she was like, well, we're not fucking scared to go back to work. We're going mm-hmm. back to work. Everything's going back. You know, like, we're we're pulling everything together again. And I think that that's essentially that really helped shape Obviously, New York City pride, but in a sense, it um, it helped. Um, it kind of like with the pride for New York City, it kind of helped like build a little bit of pride for America too. Like blindly, you didn't even realize it was happening as a child. Yeah, I, but you know what? But also, I have a lot of. I could I could speak an entire episode about my experience as a young person in New York when nine eleven happened. We don't need to go into all that. But another like the. Pieces of the World Trade Center being shipped across the country to like create centerpieces or whatever at churches and at other places of government. Like you can get some of the the bars or some of the like stuff that fell down and like put it as a, make a monument in your little town in Kansas. And that sort of like it's not really an export; it's a domestic export. You're shipping it from one city to the next of patriotism. We're dealing in patriotism. And so I, I work in the financial district here in New York City. And so I walk by the memorial multiple times a week. And I, I still have not gone into the museum. I tried once a few years ago and walking in and I saw 
someone's wallet in under a glass dome, like in a vitrine. And that made me so nauseous I had to leave because I, it just felt, and I understand that the, the museum is a nonprofit, but all of the people, all of the vendors, all of the people hawking their wares, selling America shit, selling I Love New York shit, selling NYPD, NYFD, or FDNY rather, like all of that stuff outside, that commodification of a tragedy under the guise of patriotism makes me sick. Yeah. And does that mean I am being patriotic because I'm disgusted at this perversion of patriotism? I don't know what that means for me. For me, I take it as I'm a New Yorker. First and foremost, I'm a fucking New Yorker. And America comes second to me. That's how I gather hipsters. Were you here for 9-11? <laughs> no, then you're not a New Yorker. Then you're not, then you're not a New Yorker. I, and I think that's genuinely fair. You came after we healed and we built our city back up and we made it beautiful again and it's not dangerous anymore and now you live here. But, like, again, I agree with you. I think that a lot of patriotism comes from being a New Yorker because one of the biggest American terrorist attacks internationally that happened happened to our city. And so does, what does that mean for what does that mean for our patriotism? What does I that think mean for patriotism I, I in general? I think, especially with what you just described so perfectly, it means that it's un, you're not biased, you know? Like, you, are, you do love your city and you love your country, and I guess... But you can also recognize when bullshit is bullshit. Like, selling I Heart New York shirts outside of a place where... 2,800 people died, fell to their deaths from buildings and burned, and you're you're literally making money off of it with a phone case. And like that disgusts. That me. is that's gross. I didn't even know they. Were, I have not been back down there. I'm only here because I have to be because I work here. Otherwise, like I. Although I am going back because they just released a sports exhibit, and I want to go see it. <laughs> that's that's what pushes you over the edge. Like, oh, okay, I'll go visit now. It's sports related. Got to see it. Um, I've just I've always, I'm still very nervous to go down. I've been to the Freedom Tower and I've gone up, mm-hmm. but I did I not do the memorial. I couldn't. I won't even go to the top of the Freedom Tower. And um, it's at, a really beautiful view, but at my job, it's we, haunting. We do it every year, and I always opt out. It's very haunting. I can't, you feel empty. I just can't do it. And I have friends, like two of my friends, the, their proposal happened at the top of the World Trade Center, or the One World Trade, and the photos so are the beautiful. the Freedom Tower. The Freedom Tower, okay. yeah, sorry. I'm, no, I was going to be like, how long have they been in Kansas? <laughs> <laughs> they were in the sixth grade? No, um, at the Freedom Tower. See, I don't even know the right words for things because I dissociate. I won't yeah. engage with that because, and I guess that's a personal trauma. I didn't realize this was going to be a therapeutic episode, but um, it's... Yeah, I just, I have a lot of feelings about, like, and I'm sure here, I guess this is where we can get back to the episode of what patriotism and struggle are linked. And you can't, you can't separate them. Like, I have struggled, I have fought for my country. You hear veterans say that, which they deserve to be able to say that. They have literally fought for this country. I've gone hungry for this country. I've struggled. I've worked. I've bled. I've sweat. Like, people in my family have died. Like, these are all things that people can say. And we, we use those as ways to validate our patriotism. And as a New Yorker, I always get really pissy when non-New Yorkers claim 9-11 as a reason for being patriotic. I'm like, what did you fucking lose? Yeah, right. Like, in Chicago, what happened to you? Unless your family member was on that plane or for some reason. or you were in the Pentagon that day. Like, what did you lose? Oh, you were you were. T- tell me, tell me about how that was so hard for you. And like, maybe that's insensitive to me because maybe it did really upset them. Maybe they did have some sort of connection to it. They just it, well, they were I untouched. Just, their homes were untouched, and their schools were untouched, and their friends' parents were untouched. Like I remember going into school, and there were so many people who weren't there because their parents had died. Yeah. And if they hadn't died in the building because they worked there, they died because they worked behind the building, or they died rushing in to be the, the first, first responders. Yeah. Fifty people in the building. Like I remember my mom. She worked. 111 Wall Street, right down the block from here. And she was on her second day back to work after having her foot severed by a car. Um, She's at work, and the first one hits, like, as soon as she sits down with her coffee and her bagel, and it's her second day back. And her boss comes in, and he was like, listen, a plane hit, tower whatever, tower one. Um, Time to evacuate. He was like, but you can't run. I don't know what we're going to do. He was like, and all the trains are shutting down. 
So we had no idea what happened to her, and there were no cell phones or beepers or anything like that at this point. That oh, were, those existed, but nothing but was working because the cell but towers went They also went down. weren't very common. Like maybe a middle class family might not have a cell phone. You know what I mean? Like it, mm. it was hit or miss. This was my first week of seventh grade, and that's when I got a cell phone because that's when I started taking the subway by myself. Right. So I had just got a cell phone. She wound up like, getting on a boat to Staten Island, and if anyone ever has the chance to watch it, there is a documentary on what boats, small boats, small yachts, and like the beast and all those other things did for survivors of 9-11 that day because they took probably about 2,000 people off of the island and into wow. Staten Island. I did not know that. You should look it up. It's like a really, I could cry right now talking about it. It's a really moving documentary. Wow. Like just these guys, like Captain Mike's written on the side who have like these small little boats yeah. overfilling the boat, risking it flipping just to get these people off the fucking island. It was, it that's was incredible. beautiful and that's the power of New Yorkers. Thank you. Amen. But what, yes. But what I was, what I think what I'm, what I'm trying to connect this to is that Whatever patriotism I have is so rooted in my experience as a New Yorker that I guess... And not as an American. And not necessarily as an American, but does that mean that Red, being a, a plant worker in the Midwest... I think it has a lot to do with him being in the Korean War. Yes, it, it definitely does there. He fought and bled and suffered for his country. But also, just like, just as I get pissed off at people out West who claim 9-11... I guess I need to learn to be a little bit more empathetic for the people who are out there dealing with hardships that I've never had to like deal with. Like factories leaving. Like factories shutting down. and Exports going to Japan or to yeah. the Philippines rather than being made in America. Yeah. And You're right. That's stuff we can never touch. I, can't, I have no living experience of that. And so if their anger or support at or at like with our country or whatever their patriotism if that's sourcing their patriotism they have every right to be mad at me when I'm like well whatever that doesn't matter yeah or if I try to claim that I mean I'm not trying to claim but factories shutting down but I mean it's that just, is something I've used against Trump mm-hmm. before is him being like oh he said the Ford factory wasn't leaving and he's right it's just shutting down but like what do I know like what is the Ford factory shutting down and moving due to me right what is what is coal Nothing. Being being over. Sorry, guys. It's it's over. It's over. But that doesn't hurt me. That doesn't affect me or my life. So it's I, a two way street, and you've you've opened up a very good topic of conversation there because that's very true. And I don't think people think like that very often. And it's just, I've, we can't question each other's patriotism except for when we're putting the flag on our balls. Right, yeah. <laughs> that's the only time. Right, yeah. Honestly, that's fine, that's, though. I have questions about that. You can if wear that's it around your made. sweaty head while you're doing Molly at, you know, whatever. Coachella, whatever. <laughs> whatever yeah, shit. whatever Technicolor fucking music festival you're going to. But um, and then I guess that's this, fine. This, this leads into the next part that I wanted to bring up, which was the right to protest and the concept of dissent being patriotic. I don't think anything in America would exist if people didn't protest. That's my honest to God belief. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people have paved the way for great new ideas and transitions through protest. So I think something even as stupid as Eric streaking or Red finally just being like, hey, how the fuck could you pardon Nixon, who like literally screwed our country over as like, patriotic as he is, is probably the most patriotic person on the show mm-hmm. because he's fought he's fought in a war that he was too young probably to fight in, let's be real. And then, like, he built a life based on, like, the real American dream. You know, I drive a, a Vista Cruiser, which he eventually gets rid of, and then he gets a Toyota. <laughs> he works in a factory. He comes home. He has two perfect kids who go to the great public schools. Like, I think that his protest is much more important, obviously, than the streaking because they just kind of want it to be buttholes. Mm-hmm. But um, because his protest is coming from somewhere that matters. It's coming from someone who's actually suffering from the policies that mm-hmm. President Ford had enacted. Yeah, right. E- if even if not enacted, had failed to change. Mm-hmm. So I think that Red's right to protest is almost like the most important right to protest in this episode. I think that he is like the backbone of their protest in a sense, and the fact that Red goes against the establishment, I love that. Because he's usually so much about supporting the like, rules in America. Rules. So I love that he's the one to just be like, to, to question. And he doesn't ask about the economy, like he said. He doesn't mm-hmm. ask about any of his own problems. So even though Jack does introduce him and he's like, oh, who doesn't blame the president? He blames himself. Like, Red skipped over that. He's like, I'm not going to blame the president for me losing my job. But you did pardon a shithead. So and I th- what's up with that? I love that the moment because it 
it really it shows the idea that patriotism is not black and white. Black and white. Like following blindly is not patriotic. You should question. You should fight for, as he says, what a man thinks is right. You should stand up and say something and use your right to free speech. And this, and it's this, I mean, this is filmed in the 90s and of the stuff that's happening in the 70s. And now we're looking at it in 2018. And right, we're still talking about like, what's the correct way to protest? Right. Ahem, take a knee. Like, that whole, like, what's the correct way to protest? And with the fact that we're still having this conversation of, like, oh, all these protesters, they're being unpatriotic. They don't Shut love America. Shut up ball. Like, all these, these people who are marching around saying this and that, they're unpatriotic. They don't love America. No, we love America so much that we know this bitch can be better. I think we just mad we won't pledge our allegiance to Russia. I'm going to keep saying <laughs> going to keep saying that. <laughs> Um, but no, I totally agree. This was a very heavy loaded episode. I love this. I loved that we had this much to like much to talk about. Right, that the characters are this in depth. I think that that's a good or education not, of ninety sitcoms in America. It's not just that the characters were so in depth, but that this subject isn't tired yet. No. That, we, that this topic is just as relevant now as it was in nineteen ninety eight as it was in nineteen seventy eight. And if you think about it. In 1978, with the beginning of the closing of the factories and stuff, that's stuff that's still going on. People are still, still getting their hours cut or getting replaced by machines or whatever's happening. And I, I think that that's, it doesn't age. Like, it, oh. it aged so perfectly. Like, it never gets old. Yeah, and so I guess this episode or our episode about this television episode is sort of, all of our segments have been bleeding into one another because now I, I feel like, is this modern woke or 70s joke? This is 100% modern woke. Yeah. This is, I think, the wokest episode we've had so yes. far. And it's only episode only three. three. <laughs> um, I mean, it might take a nosedive a little bit later, but right now I think this it's handled in a really smart way that, main, that helped that Red maintains his dignity through this. And you just you see a smart very conservative, patriotic man, even he is pushed to a limit where he's questioning, what the hell is my government doing? Right. Um, and so it's... Still a valid question. Still what a valid question. What the hell is, is my, my government, government doing? doing? <laughs> wow, we really hit a lot of... <laughs> a lot of nails on the head. Oh, yeah. Like that. I mean, I knew we were talking about patriotism, but I didn't... And I knew what I wanted to talk about, like different points of the episode, but that was actually a really... You never know where it's going to go. No. That that felt good. I hope it sounded good to all of you out there and listening, Lance. It better have. <laughs> but given all of that and given just like the seriousness, not that you can't be jovial and like crack jokes about your country, you absolutely should. I think that that's a healthy way to deal with the stuff that's going on right now. But... I don't really feel like there's a problematic thing that I want to talk about other than our fucking government being problematic. Problematic AF. So, yeah, definitely has reached Danny Masterson level of problematic. Yeah. So, you know what? I take it back. I was going to say we don't need to do a problematic scale. I think we do. This is probably the only time that this scale works. I think Donald Trump. On a scale of one to Danny Masterson, what do you give him, Louisa? He is full on Danny Masterson. It's two Danny Masterson's. A lot of He's definitely raped more women. I'm just saying. (laughs) Actually, it's not even no, a joke. That's like, not, not even, even a I'm joke. not even being funny at all. Shit. I'm actually being very... I mean, and I recognize that... I mean, actually, I highly doubt that any of our listeners voted for Trump, just knowing you and well, me and our friend did, groups... You can get fucked. Knowing you and me and our friend groups and also recognizing that this probably isn't going to go that far outside of who we personally know. Imagine we start an internet riot. <laughs> like Kim K, break the internet. <laughs> break the internet because we say that... That Donald Trump is actually worse than Danny Masterson. Because he's a rapist. Yeah. And all the other fucking shit that he's doing. I know, but like he really, him and Danny Masterson are two peas in a, in a rape pod. Blech. All right, so yeah, I started this sentence saying, we're not going to rate anything. And I'm ending the sentence saying, Trump is the goddamn worst. He has earned all the Danny Masterson points And that's points like the highest are. I think we're going to get on this scale unless we come back and talk about Trump again. Was there a burn? Do you want to talk about a burn for the episode? I think 
The only burn, that I, and I'm going to change honestly, it because we've burned done a himself. couple. <laughs> but I think um, Red, when he proposes his question to Ford, and he says, Hey, Jerry, here's my question. I think that was such a good old man sick burn. I'm just like, I'm going to call you by your first name. Like, you don't even get President Ford. You are Jerry. Not even Gerald. Jerry. Like, I know, like, we're bowling buddies. Like, we're going to go down to the lanes and crack a couple brewskis or whatever. I love that. You know, crack open a cold one with the boys. Right. All right. That was a sick burn. Thanks, Red, for delivering. Yeah. Heat. Red, uh, Red was red hot this episode, so. <laughs> I'll be here all week. Oh, God help me. Well, that is it for today's episode of That 70s Showdown. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, let us know what you think. See you next week, though. Deuces. Thanks for listening to That 70s Showdown. Next week, we'll be talking about sexism, musical theater, tennis champions, and men in dresses. Today's episode was researched, produced, and edited by Louisa Rorschach. Our logo was designed by Annie Daly. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, thatshowdownpodcast.com. There you'll find show notes about every episode and links to our Spotify playlist. If you love listening to us, please tell your circle about it. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, too, at That70sShowdown. See you next week. America, fuck yeah, fighting crime to save the motherfucking day now. America, fuck yeah, freedom is the only way now. Terrorists, your time is through, because now you have to answer to America, fuck yeah. That's how we're opening this episode. (laughs) (laughs) We're closing it out. Perfect.